Welcome again to a new episode of uh, Views from Down Under. Today I am with our uh, esteemed panel, uh, Nick Koo from Otago, Orson, Tan, and Neil Van Vary. Uh, Junis P is not with us today, but a shout out to him and congratulations on being a new father. So just uh, early this morning, uh, June is a... Uh, New dad, congratulations. Uh, welcome to the world, baby uh, Espia. Uh, there you go. Uh, this week, uh, this past two weeks, we, we came upon two really interesting articles uh, published in The Economist. And the first article that we will uh, talk about uh, after this very, very brief introduction is, is titled, What Will Indonesia Look Like After Jokowi Leaves? Okay, so uh, as everyone knows, uh, this is the last uh, year of uh, Jokowi's presidency and elections coming up really, really soon. Uh, very hotly contested. And I'll let uh, Orson talk a little bit about uh, the Jokowi uh, phenomenon in, uh, in Indonesia. And then the other article that uh, uh, attracted our attention is uh, a, no a second November piece on uh, Modi shifting uh, India from a much more Israel-focused uh, 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 foreign policy rather than uh, in the past more like a balance between Palestine, Palestinians and in, in, in Israeli uh, positions. But this, uh, well, I'll, I'll have uh, Neil talk a little bit and give us a perspective of the domestic politics behind it. And then uh, we can take it from there. So let's start with the first topic. Uh, Orson, why don't you lead the discussion on this? Okay, so what happened was uh, earlier this, no, early last week, we had the first poll results come out from Indonesia for their presidential election. So on February 14th next year, Indonesia goes to the polls. And, you know, elections in Indonesia is a really big thing, especially since... Uh, 1998, when they more or less transitioned past the post-Suharto uh, era into a real new period of democratic uh, governance. And the interesting thing to note was that at the candidate that's leading in the polls, uh, the current defense minister, what's his name? Uh, Prabowo. Oh. Is actually has actually named Jokowi's son Gibran as his running mate. Now this might sound familiar to some of our listeners when we talk about uh, something that happened in the Philippines, where outgoing President Rodrigo Duterte named uh, had his daughter. Uh, what's the daughter's name? Sarah Duterte. Sarah Duterte. Sarah Duterte was named as uh, Marcos's running mate. So the question now is is going what's going on in Indonesia because if you recall uh, Jokowi entered Indonesian politics in uh, uh, 2014 as sub, as a bit of a joker a joker card he was seen as somebody who didn't have ties to the old guard the elite the the military he was someone who had you know basically was a man made fresh came, you know, struggled his way up the political ladder through local governance in Jakarta and everything, all the way up to the highest office without having any of this baggage that, that uh, Indonesian politicians normally have. And yet now it seems that despite, you know, having made it to the presidency on this whole ticket of being clean, new, uh, uh, a clear cut away from the, the old ways of, of patronage politics in Indonesia, Jokowi is doing the same thing. He's trying to rebuild his legacy. And it, it's quite, quite interesting because at the same time this year, uh, Jokowi unveiled what was Indonesia's long-term de uh, development plan, the idea of uh, Indonesia IMAS, Golden Indonesia. They want to be a global player, a huge economy in the region. They want to lead ASEAN by 2045, which is the 
century, the centenary celebration of their independence. So the, I think why we are focusing so much on Indonesia because we see Indonesia a lot as uh, people don't realize that Indonesia is kind of a sleeping tiger in the in this region. They have a lot of ambitions to be a major player, just like their neighbor Australia. They have a lot of potential to be a major player, but will that happen? That's the question. If if Prabowo becomes a becomes the the president with Gibran as his vice president, will that lead to Indonesia having a new golden age in terms of their development, in terms of their military and all that? Any thoughts, guys? Yeah, I think that's a, a good point that you've raised. And, and in the article, actually, it also talks about the uh, regional ambitions of Indonesia in playing more of a role. In fact, uh, uh, Jokowi has been doing that, hosting a lot of these big international summits and what have you, placing Indonesia there. I find it really quite interesting because oftentimes uh, a president that is quote-unquote pretty much lame duck uh, in a way uh, starts to do all these graduation tours, you know, uh, uh, you know when, they're, when they're finishing up their, gra- uh, their, their term, they will always do something more international. Uh, building up that legacy on the international stage now. Uh, because in a way, I, I, if you analyze the domestic politics, it also means to say that, that uh, the sway of the president uh, at the end of the term tends to be much weaker than at the meat of the term, right? Because if you are parliamentarians trying to approve a budget for the president, you're less likely to be that cooperative because the president doesn't, can't do much anymore. Uh, uh, but in the article, it also says something about uh, the very, very infrastructure and development focus of mm-hmm. the Jokowi administration. He spent a lot of money uh, building a new capital uh, somewhere in the Bor- in Borneo. In the uh, jungles of Borneo. In the jungles of Borneo and asking for investment that has not really come through as much. Yeah. Uh, uh, of note, though, guys, is uh, yes, Indonesia has regional ambitions, but there are a couple of players that are interesting in this that may form. A, I don't know. I mean, whether is it a constraint towards or 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 some sort of limit to Indonesian regional ambitions? Anyway, the one of the biggest player, of course, as we know, is China, and mm-hmm. and, and China has lots of investments in 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 in. Indonesian an, infrastructure, right? It has an outsized presence in Indonesia in terms of its investment in infrastructure, in terms of its investment in its mining industry, which is its yeah. largest export. That's right, the nickel, the, yeah. uh, the nickel mine industry. And then there's another one that is that's considered as an interesting limit to uh, Indonesian ambitions is its neighbor to the south, Australia. Australia. Yeah, and Australia is always quite. It has very interesting relationship with uh, Indonesia, right? Uh, uh, so, what do you guys think? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I I wasn't necessarily focusing so much on the international, Alex. When I read the article, that's my first impression. Mm-hmm. Although you have a very valid point that there are international constraints on Indonesia. For before I kind of focused on on registering your point, it, it struck me that actually the the biggest barrier to Indonesia is Indonesia. Uh, in the sense <laughs> that, and I'll just a- explain a little bit, you know, um, Orson, talk, Orson referenced this idea of Indonesia as a sleeping tiger. Indonesia has been a sleeping tiger for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the late 90s, uh, there was a Far Eastern Economic Review journalist who wrote a book called A Nation in Waiting. And he was, he was referring to Indonesia. And, and unfortunately, we're still waiting for Indonesia to emerge. And, and this points to the idea that, you know, there's a lot of unfulfilled potential in Indonesia. Yes. And, uh, you know, it's quite frustrating. And I would say, if we want to talk about the foreign policy side of things, ASEAN is crying out for leadership from Indonesia and is not been getting it. You know, the big question to me is, why hasn't Indonesia stepped up and played a much bigger role in Southeast Asia, 
to serve as a balancer precisely to China, like Alex was indicating. Instead, we get China in Indonesia, you know, <laughs> doing all these investments. And so when you look at Indonesia, yes, there's there's clearly been progress and so forth. And but the question is why hasn't there been more progress? And and so that that's the one one question. The second question for me uh, is uh, you know, it's and, and I guess this links into to India too, is that, you know, there's this, and I'm not saying that political science models need to be correct in, in real life, but, you know, as we are familiar, this idea of modernization theory, economic growth, sustained economic growth and development will lead to liberal democracy and the consolidation of liberal democracy. In fact, uh, as the Indonesian case suggests, with respect, reference to these articles, where, you know, next election is coming up soon. And if anything, indications are that Provost himself actually is an example of cronyism. I yep. mean, on a mass level. And then to have him dominating, I mean, uh, the, the, the son of the present prime, uh, president um, suggests that, you know, this idea, idealized version of liberal democracy that we have in the political science literature is contradicted by Indonesia, mm-hmm. which is, one of the largest, you could argue, if I'm actually, I'm, I think I'm right in this, the largest Muslim population in yep. the world, right? Mm. Yes. So political science models are totally contradicted by this case of uh, Indonesia. If anything, far from getting uh, democratic consolidation, we're getting democratic backsliding even before the, it's consolidated. <laughs> So that's my two cents worth. <laughs> I, I think it's important to pick up on what Nick said about Indonesia's biggest obstacle to 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 its role or to assuming the role as a as a regional player or global player is Indonesia itself because the actions of Jokowi here in in trying to create to to enshrine his legacy and create himself a position or a space to operate like the old the old patronage uh, the old elite have created their own spaces to 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 operate speaks about the fact that you know any disruptor in in this in this uh, space can be bought over you know you know what uh, when when you guys were talking about the uh, the limits to the country's potential is the own is is that own country uh, and the far east economic uh, review piece about the uh, a giant in waiting or uh, or, or what have you I'm kind of chuckling because uh, it sounds like the other letter I, indeed, uh, as well. Indeed, uh, India is the same thing. You know, we've been we've been wait we've been talking about India as the next economic powerhouse mm. as whatever, and we're still waiting. We're still waiting for that as well. And I think you know, Nick, when you attribute to the fact that uh, uh, modernization theory uh, fails to explain uh, uh, what's happening on the ground in 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 Indonesia. Uh, I don't know. I mean, maybe uh, there, in the specificity side, uh, maybe indeed uh, it doesn't apply very well to the Indonesian case because we did not see we did not see uh, democratization consolidated in Indonesia. Uh, but I, you know, I mean, in in fairness to democratization theory, also uh, uh, modernization theory also is is that there has to be a critical level of of uh, middle class. That is confident enough in its in its own status that it will be supporting a democratic movement rather than a much more status quo power. Uh, in this case, in this case, I I don't think in, we can consider Indonesia as a developing country and still uh, a developing country. That I won't I won't put its number of of uh, middle class uh, up there. Having said that, though Singapore is the exception, right? Uh, there, there are always exceptions to those, uh, uh, you know, counter examples. For example, Costa Rica, India, uh, mm. Costa Rica as a democracy, for example, uh, were in when you think of its social uh, its economic development levels, it's not to the level of where Singapore is, right? So, uh, uh, but they are effectively a democracy and has been one for a long time. So, mm-hmm. there are of course exceptions and, and outliers. Uh, so to speak, but as you said, uh, uh, senior minister Lee Kuan Yew, uh, uh, the founding <laughs> founding father of Singapore, do remind us that there's a word called 
Asian values. values. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that said, so maybe you have all these modernization stuff, and then you throw in the factor called Asian values, and then it changes things. Because if you think of what Jokowi is doing, it seems like in Southeast Asia, dynastic politics is, is quite way, a thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dynastic politics is quite a thing, right? You have family. Everybody knows, uh, 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 most people anyway, and do do know that in the Philippines, politics is organized in family, in clan politics, right? So clan politics is very much affected by it. And it seems like post-war Indonesia is not too different, you know? Uh, Sukarno's family, Suharto's family, you know? Yeah, because Uh, if you you think about it, Prabowo is uh, Suharto's son-in-law. And then Gibran, right. Gibran, Gibran is only 36 years old. So he technically does not, according to the constitution, he does not qualify to run as vice president. But they're planning to change that, right? No, they've changed it because uh, Jokowi's brother-in-law is the chief, chief justice. justice of the constitutional court. And yeah. he, he cast the deciding vote in the constitutional court to change the rules for to allow Gibran to, to run. As they say, you know, it runs in the family, right? So, so when you and and the, the interesting thing about that article uh, that I uh, that I catch is is that notice that it says that uh, it also says that Indonesia do see China as a economic development model and how mm. how efficient things can change, and it it kind of it kind of like goes back to this idea that Lee Kuan Yew says about Asian values, you know there are things that there are things that the Asian voters or Asian citizens seem to be you know, preferring, you know, like, oh, we want fast action. We want, we want action, <laughs> mm. you know, uh, uh, and I don't know if, uh, if this is the right word for it, it almost feels like the end justify the means kind of like that, you know, uh, as long as we get what we get, you know, we get our high speed railway, we get infrastructure, we get this, we get that, you know, so, but yeah, I, I think Indonesia's uh, limits on itself is also the fact that, if you look at this current crop of leaders and the leaders since post-war, it's dominated by Java. Mm-hmm. It's dominated by Java. And it, this is a country that goes from, you know, uh, from, uh, from uh, how should I say, from east to west. It's a huge country. The largest archipelago in the world, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it is a very multicultural country, uh, even among, you know, Sumatra, Borneo, uh, uh, Java, you know, uh, Sulawesi, you know, uh, it's huge. Yeah, uh, it's really huge. But the dominance of Javanese politics as a, it's kind of a center periphery thing. And in, and in, in a way, unless the domestic politics and the domestic institutional structures are able to actually be truly inclusive within Indonesia itself, it will always be a challenge going forward uh, for Indonesia to play a much more outsized role in regional politics. And as you say, you know, uh, why are they not the leadership thing that is not happening in ASEAN? And, uh, and it's something that ASEAN needs, right? The region needs Indonesia to be strong. The region needs Indonesia to be able to step up and, and serve in a way that Singapore cannot. Because while we know that you know, if you look at low East power index, yes, Singapore is the rate ranked the highest of all the Southeast Asian countries and everything. And they have the best military and all that. But at the end of the day, Singapore is, uh, in, in the favor, famous words of uh, Sukarno, the little red dot, you know, it's nothing. And, and you cannot expect leadership from, or, 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 or an outsized presence from, from Singapore to, to stabilize the region that, you know, you need that stabilizer there, and and Indonesia as that large, that large, large population, large geographical size with huge lots of natural resources, have always had the ambition to be that, but they've never really stepped up to the plate. And yeah, but now, I, I'm, I, I'm curious. I'm curious though that as we say that we in ASEAN, ASEAN leaders do want to see Indonesia, and in fact, regional uh, players do want to see Indonesia. Uh, play a bigger role, right? But they they say it, but do they actually really want to? And that's number one. And the second question is, can they actually? Yeah. 
Can yeah, that's actually... right. I mean, um, Alex, that's a great point. Uh, do ASEAN states want Indonesia to play a larger, uh, potentially leadership role? And it's not clear um, because if you look at, um, for example, Singapore uh, defense policy, what are its concerns? Principally, the, the concern would be the force structure of the, of the Singapore Armed Forces is designed to prevent an attack from, from Malaysia. Mm -hmm. I, I don't care what your ASEAN spirit says. The, yes. you know, the, Indonesia, uh, Singapore looks at capabilities and the threat would come. And of course, World War II, the threat came from Malaysia via Japan, right? Yeah. So you, you can't blame the Singaporeans for not you know, having that focus. And then the second th uh, contingency or scenario would be from Indonesia, mm -hmm. right? Because the mere fact it's over 200 million. And so... And plus the confrontasi. Yeah, the confrontasi. You know, where they actually did uh, send commandos that blew up McDonald House in Singapore. Uh, and so, you know... I think this is all part of a general picture where ASEAN itself can't even exercise leadership, you know, uh, let alone Indonesia. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure where this discussion is going, but it, it's certainly complicating our understanding of of uh, the international relations of Asia. Yeah, but 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 what we're saying and what we're pointing out is actually quite real, right? I mean, we always we always see Indonesia as having that great potential with all that. Uh, resource that they have. But uh, years ago, uh, uh, many, many years ago, a former student of mine uh, wrote a thesis about resource curse, you know, does having great natural resource actually curse you into becoming much more, you know, dependent on it, that uh, that it actually becomes a burden rather than something that makes you even stronger, right? But yeah, yeah uh, and then the fact that in my view is that Indonesian domestic politics is still you know, you almost always feel, I mean, to me, as an observer anyway, despite the fact that since 1997, there has been several peaceful changes of, of, of governance and administration in, in, in Indonesia that will give you uh, relatively more confidence that this democracy is probably slowly consolidating. Somehow, though, you kind of always feel like there will there could be one thing that could break the camel's back, that they could move yeah. to democratic re recession and backsliding as fast as they can do, be moving towards democracy. You know what I mean? That 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 there it does it it never feels to me that democracy is as institutionalized uh, in 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 Indonesia, and because of that, the the governance structure and and. Right now, the, the 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 barter exchanges that you're seeing between Prabowo mm -hmm. and the different the different Javanese leaders, so to speak, also tells you that 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 deep level of democratic institutionalization that Huntington will talk about, right? Yeah. When Huntington talks about economic growth, uh, remember 1960s Huntington wrote this excellent book on political orders in changing society, mm. yeah. wherein he talks about economic growth triggering two things, modernization and mobilize, uh, institutionalization and mobilization, yeah. Yeah. right? So depending on how fast these things happen, it can either lead to a political decay or it can lead to political stability. But somehow, you know, I'm still not totally sold on how institutionalized democratic politics is in Indonesia, when at the moment it's all about Javanese politicians controlling the show and essentially exchanging benefits, but to the what about you know people in Kalimantan? What about people in Sulawesi? What about people in in the West, right? And and in in Sumatra, how how involved are they in the? the politics and the unevenness of development in Indonesia. Java continues to have mm. most of the development and the rest are not. So I think until Indonesia is able to resolve that problem internally, right? Uh, regional economic development, regional political development, uh, pure, a, a very uh, uh, convincing institutionalization of democratic politics, so to speak, that is inclusive. I think 
the the in, Nick, when you brought about the topic, uh, when you said the sentence that the limits to Indonesia is Indonesia, rings even more true, right? So, yeah. if Indonesia strengthens itself internally, right, in all facets, social, economic, political development, then Indonesia will be more confident in stepping out. In stepping yeah, out, unless it does that, it's yeah. hard there, because there's always. You know, if if you if you want to do the international thing, but your domestic is dragging you back, you will always have one one step forward, two step backward. You know, the case yeah. in point, America. Yeah, right now. Mm. Yes, yeah, so yeah. for whatever reason, Indonesia finds it challenging to develop truly independent institutions that somehow. Uh, exercise agency apart from individuals and their families, and you know it's it's kind of like a cycle or a paradox where they, they, they had that chance. Forward. Yeah, they had a chance, but they they can't f- go forward without the individuals and the families and the you know patri- the all the kind of elite politics. Yet, uh. By going to look at these families and and individuals for solutions, it impedes the integrity of the institution. So they're in yeah, this they just can't get out. Eh? It does. It does. And and if you notice uh, the two neighbors uh, in this case, I will uh, uh, the Philippines and and Indonesia. I think one thing that we notice in the political development, party, uh, political system development of these countries is that they have very weak interest aggregation organizations. Mm. Mm, you know, yeah. uh, uh, yeah. so this the function of weak, uh, uh, and and when we talk about weak interest, as a scholar of political parties myself and political economy, I notice that countries that have a much more coherent party system. Uh, first of all, is able to properly mobilize people, be mm-hmm. much more. So the interest aggregation function of political parties is very real and it's very, very important. It, it has development effects, right? And then, of course, the interest articulation as a result. Because unless you have these organizations, political parties, for example, that is consolidated, that represents various sectors of society, that brings in, you know, that aggregates the people, mobilizes them, and expresses their desires and issue concerns and what have you. You have what Nick you will describe as much more elite version of only the elites are talking amongst themselves, but there's hardly any integration of the general public, right? And in a country that is not has not solved this issue, you will notice that there's always a a drag back towards their confidence in international things because there's always domestic br- backpack their backpack is too heavy you know mm-hmm. there's there's just too many things there so um yeah maybe maybe that's why we we see it as a you know the dropping back to elite uh the dropping back to elites again is probably a limit uh, uh to their ability to go forward when you don't have uh what our friend uh uh, Peter Lee uh, used uh, in the recent conference that we had in Christchurch. Uh, he said uh, the social buy-in, the social licensing, right? So in anything that you do, you need to have social license, particularly in democracy. So, so, so are think- we going to extrapolate that and say then ASEAN's biggest limitation is ASEAN itself? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, I, I think as the, the the sum of the the sum of ASEAN and the strength of ASEAN is made by the the resilience of the individual ASEAN states as well, right? So in my view is that uh, as the limits of ASEAN uh, is because ASEAN is many states within ASEAN, uh, the, the domestic politics and the polit- domestic political structure are such that there are still a lot of baggage Mm-hmm. Uh, that limits its own effectiveness, and because ASEAN strength is the sum of each of the component, how strong each of the components are, uh, it limits it. You know, Myanmar is another case in point, right? I yeah. mean, Myanmar's very low level of political development, as such, uh, particularly in the democracy score, and in, you know, uh, hurts it. Cambodia, the same, it hurts it, right? So, uh, Thailand to a certain extent, right? So. It, there, there are limits because not because of ASEAN not being important. 
the, lim the limits is because the internal domestic political structure, socioeconomic structure of many ASEAN states are the ones that drag it back. So it cannot fully contribute to ASEAN. So maybe it's something for ASEAN leaders to actually think. And yes, as the as the uh, the saying of the famous pop king, you know, uh, um, Michael Jackson says, "It's always the man in the mirror." <laughs> <laughs> it's always the man in the mirror, right? So if ASEAN can look each individual ASEAN state before we say that you need to do more, you need to do more, you need to do more. How about saying, how do I strengthen myself so that I can confidently engage in ASEAN and truly contribute when I don't have to worry about what's behind me, you know? Exactly. Yeah, so anyway, let's move on to the next topic. This is very, very interesting. Uh, this India uh, shift uh, in, at least in the media anyway, towards uh, Israel's uh, point of view. And... Uh, can uh, Neil, can you introduce us to what's happening there? So um, there's been a, there's been a fairly um, sort of uh, a, f a fair bit of brouhaha in in the media recently, talking about India's position on the Israel-Palestine affair, and it all started on the day of um, the of, on on the day that events began unfolding in the Middle East, and India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. Uh, released a statement through Twitter saying he condemns Hamas's terrorist attack on 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 Israel, and he unequivocally um, gave his support to Israel. I think it took the Ministry of External Affairs in India about five days to then to then sort of come back and say that while we do while we do support Israel, we still uh, believe that there's room for Palestine and for a, for a cessation of hostilities in Gaza. And then about a week ago, at the UN, at the UN Security Council, or the General, sorry, the General Assembly, India for the first time abstained on resolution uh, in relation to Israel and Palestine, which is in contrast to its previous positions, where it not only has supported the Palestinian cause, but certainly used its vote of the UN to vote in favor of it. And... Um, I mean, in, in, it, this has been made very clear in the reporting of the whole issue that India was one of the first non-Arab um, states to um, not only recognize the PLO, but to give Palestine full statehood in 1988. Yeah. And it ended up uh, having full diplomatic relations with Israel not until 1992. Um, and that sort of contrasts itself with India's positioning of itself as being the leader of the global south. Because if we look at how the UN resolution unfolded, uh, the majority of the nations in the global south voted in favor of the resolution, uh, and India abstained. Uh, and that's that's sort of where we are in relation to, it, at least it's sort of the the, 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 the the quick snapshot of where India stands. It's, it's gone from having almost an equidistant position on the Israel-Palestine issue to now at least decidedly becoming much more pro-Israel for the time being, um, based on its recent actions at the UN General Assembly, and indeed based on the statements which have come from the Prime Minister himself. Yeah. Um, and the question that people are asking, of course, is, well, where does this place India in terms of its leadership of the Global South? Does it, is it truly articulating the views of the Global South? Or is it the case that India is now in a position where, based on its uh, relations with Israel, which it's developed quite prominently, uh, certainly in the, in, in the decade that Prime Minister Modi has been in power, but m more so from the 1990s, is it the case that India is now acting in its own interests to a certain degree and preserving that relationship with Israel as well? Uh, so that's where we are in relation to India and Israel and Palestine. Um, and I think I had... That was the question I had actually when I read the article was the idea that what was the calculation that when it went through went through the the minds of the Indian policymakers when they when they made this decision because on one hand you have that legacy of Nehru and the non-aligned movement and and, and the, the support for the global south and all of that and of course India has not been quiet about its ambitions to position itself as the leader of the global south especially when you see the way they've handled themselves at the, at the BRICS summit and all of that. Absolutely, and absolutely. How does that contrast to what 
payoff does it do they get with siding with Israel in this case? Well, I think I think you're right about India's sort of open ambition of being the leader of the global south. We saw that mm-hmm. at BRICS, but also at the G20. I mean, if, if we remember the G20, India couldn't stop lobbying in favor of making the African Union a permanent member of the G20. In fact, that was being touted as India's greatest achievement. That throughout the G20 summit, it was able to corral everybody else to bring the African Union uh, to the table and, and giving mm-hmm. itself a seat, a seat at the table. And this idea of being a voice of the global south, as you rightly pointed out, goes back all the way to 1947, when when uh, you know it was one of Nehru's grand pillars of his, of, of mm-hmm. his grand strategy to portray India as being the leader of the global south and, and indeed supporting the cause of um, sort of independence of, of, of countries of the global south and very from a very anti-colonial perspective. And in 1947, when the UN was discussing... Uh, the resolution of creating Israel, India voted against it. But there is a parallel development here, which is that if you look at what was happening in terms of the literature and in terms of the, the, the ideological positioning of Hindu nationalism, it was still very much in favor of creation of Israel. You've had Hindu nationalist writers and scholars and, and the, the big minds of the Hindu nationalist movement always saying that they've supported the cause of Israel. They supported the cause of another fellow nation being formed on the basis of its ideology, much like India. And you can see that sea change take place. So the, the, there is that domestic element of it, which is that the cause of Israel resonates with the Hindu nationalist ideology, which the current incoming government talks about, certainly at the grassroots level as well. You can see that playing out in India in terms of how it's portrayed the conflict, it's taken a much more pro-Israel stance in the Indian media. But also in terms of the the, the grassroots of the BJP, the grassroots of Hindu nationalist organizations that feed into the BJP, they've they've supported the cause of Israel from that predominant position that it took all those years ago. And then, of course... As far as Indian, India's position in the Middle East is concerned at the international level, it's certainly got credible interests. Most of its oil comes from the Middle East. You have about 10 million um, Indians who work in the Middle East. And to that extent, it's always tried its best to maintain its relations with other players in the Middle East as well, certainly in the Gulf, but also Egypt. Uh, it recently started the India, Israel, uh, UAE and US sort of informal dialogue called the I2U2. Um and over the last 10 years or so, um, certainly after Modi came to power, um, India's re- increased its reliance on um, Israeli weapon systems, and drones particularly, and some say even surveillance technology. So its its interest in terms of its position, I suppose, to a certain degree, comes from in terms of the international element, is that this newfound uh, impetus, a newfound inertia in its, relation with, in, the, in its relationship with Israel. But it's also playing out well in the domestic sphere, I think, and it has a domestic audience. Then the other thing to consider is, I think, institutional memory in India is quite a, is quite a thing, and we saw that as far as India's position on Ukraine was concerned, and and how India acted in terms of its how it was still supporting Russia, or at least wasn't condemning Russia publicly on account of that institutional memory. When the India-Pakistan war broke out in 1999, Israel was there in terms of arms and, and, and ammunition, and you'll hear that from some Indian commentators that before the India-US relationship had a defense pillar to it, the India-Israeli relationship has a, had a defense pillar to it. And that institutional memory, I suspect, is very much at play here as well. And the biggest element is the point that India is trying to make in terms of emphasizing that it views all this from, from a lens of counterterrorism and how the Indian foreign minister himself said that we in India have been, have, have borne the brunt of uh, terrorist atrocities for quite some time. Indeed, yeah. he went as far as to say that a lot of countries in the global south uh, have borne the brunt of terrorism for quite some time. And that's the primary lens through which, in primary lens where it's, cou- where it's sort of couching its response. Um, and of course, if you, if you stretch that further and bring in that domestic Hindu nationalist element here, support for Israel, in a way, is you taking a stance against Islamic terrorism, which again feeds well from an ideological perspective uh, as well. And I think that that's sort of the overarching calculation here. Yeah, I think that the point about Islamic terrorism is, is, is a good point because that was the same, uh, it's part of, it was part of, uh, sorry, it was part of uh, Singapore's 
calculation when they first stood up and and made a statement that they condemned the uh, uh, Hamas terrorist mm. attacks because Singapore has had that experience with you know being being a target of Islamic terrorism. Mm. There was a I can't remember how long ago it was that somebody tried to launch rockets from the island of Batam into Singapore. And before that, you know, the back in the early 2000s, we had the JI operating in Southeast Asia and they were planning to bomb a couple of the train stations in Singapore as well. So terrorism formed a big part of Singapore's initial response to the conflict. Mm. But then at the same time, they've, they have stepped up and said, you know, uh, while Israel has the right to self-defense, it needs to be proportionate in it. And that's why mm. we voted for the resolution in the General Assembly. I think India sort of clawed back as well to a certain degree. I think it, it took a while for the Ministry of External Affairs to release that sort of balancing statement in a way that, mm-hmm. yes, Israel's got the right to, to, to sort of self-defense, you know, the right of self-defense, and we consider this to be predominantly terrorist um, attack. But... Uh, you know, you, you've got to make sure that uh, civilians are not killed, and 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 it's still sort of. I think what it's trying to do at the end of the day is support Israel uh, to the best of its ability, but also still try and uh, keep its traditional position of supporting a two-state resolution intact. Yeah. And it's squaring that circle that I think is quite difficult. Um, and you can see that in, in sort of the, the 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 delay in in the in in the release of that balanced statement. Um, <clears throat> but also, somebody asked me this yesterday. That okay? Do you do you consider you know it's 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 okay to say that India is part of the global south, but with a, with, with the space program, is it part of the global north of the global south? And it's I mean that was that was quite an uh, sort of it, that was an interesting question to be confronted with, I suppose. Yeah, I think to, to me it really seems to me that India is an behaving like an archetypal real estate. Mm. And I'll explain a little bit more. Um, first of all, um, the Indian position backing the Russians over the Ukrainians is a very interesting case where it's certainly not acting like a liberal democratic state supporting a fellow liberal democratic, albeit imperfect Ukrainian democracy. It's, it's coming out and supporting the Russians in various ways. Um, people have said that, oh, well, uh, India supporting uh, Russia because they get their military supplies uh, traditionally from from Russia. Yeah, so that's consistent with this idea that democracy and liberal democracy doesn't really matter in India's foreign policy. Um, Also, this idea um, that um, somehow liberal democracies don't uh, conduct assassinations uh, we haven't actually talked about the Canadian case. Um, you know, obviously the full details have yet to come out, but that's an astonishing development. If it is in any way true that the Indian state had a role to play in this particular incident, um, you know, that would really cast a, a really poor uh, light on on mm. um, this idea that democracy determines a, a state's foreign policy. And then a, a third kind of aspect to this idea of India as a as a real estate. Now, I don't necessarily know the answer to this question. Perhaps, Neil, you know. I would be interested to know about the composition of I- India's oil supply mm. or, or rather its imports. Does it predominantly get its oil from Saudi Arabia or from Iran? And, you know, because that would be very interesting looking at the Israel side of things. Because mm. as you know, the rapprochement between the Saudis and the Israelis and so forth. Absolutely, I think it's. I'm not. I'm not entirely certain where the majority of its oil supplies come from. I think it's quite diversified, but it's predominantly from the Middle East. I. I. I know. I knew that. I know that at one point it was a credible amount came from places like Iraq and Kuwait. I'm not sure how much they've diversified since then. Um, and speaking of, of your point of 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 rapprochement, I think it it was one of the one of the reasons I suppose why. There has there has been a certain level of ease with the the support that that India has offered Israel is taking that rapprochement into account that you had almost a, a bit of thawing of relations between the Arab states and Israel themselves, and I suspect India may have taken that into consideration as well based on how it's 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 sort of placed itself. 
Um, and I mean, I agree. I think it's at the end of the day, if we ask whether Indian foreign policy is being decided about on, on by interests or values, that you have a liberal democracy here who didn't support Ukraine as wholeheartedly as was expected, because if it's because it had certain interests in keeping its relationship with Russia as intact as possible, I suspect you you would also argue that the, that the element of interest is um, is playing a role here because after Russia, India's second largest market for arms and ammunition is Israel. Um, and that's, it's, yeah, it's it's one of those things where, I think I wrote this in, in the book that Professor Tan and you have edited, have, have edited as well, that's about to come out in January, that if we're looking at it from an interest versus values perspective, I think India's become slightly, it's slightly more open in its decision making, particularly basing it on its interests. And it's not sort of shying away from it, uh, but still trying to couch it in its, in its Asian values, in its Asian values, or or in, or in its case, it's strategic autonomy. You know, it's it's multi alignment, and it's 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 trying. The way to, I look at it, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. but the, the, the way I, the way I look at it is uh, is, is that as you Nick uh, uh, Neil, you you rightly pointed out, and uh, Nick, as you also pointed out, it's it's and you Orson as well, it's domestic politics. Mm. Mm. It's it's it Modi staying true to to uh, uh, BJP's ideology. Yeah. So it's anti-terrorism, Indian nationalism. Yeah. That is being very much reflected in what they're doing here. And you said, uh, Neil, about uh, Indian uh, conservative writers yeah. uh, always have support for Israel as a, as a state. Mm. And, and and I can see that it's it has a lot to do with Indian nationalism. Yeah. What what to me that uh, when I read the article uh, that was published in uh, in the Economist that kind of like uh, uh, my read into it is it's almost like uh, again it's looking at snapshots mm-hmm. and not understanding the video. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that article is very much at fault because the way the way the article is written is almost as if it is because of this new thing, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, the alliance with the United States, the Quad, uh, the I two U two, you know, yeah. all of those, all of those things that India is doing what it's doing. So uh, it is doing America a favor by sticking more closely to is Israeli position and abstaining on uh, abstaining on uh, uh, the General Assembly vote on October twenty seven. I think you know when people read this article. Just independently, yeah. it is. A, it only provides you a snapshot, and and looking at two snapshots, then telling a story about these about India's position based on two photographs, it is not. So I, I guess what I, what we're trying to do here is is that we are giving you, uh, we're giving our listeners that uh, a longer video. Yeah. In other words, we're not giving you two photographs or three photographs about what's happening in India today and why. And then from these three photographs, interpolate or or make inferences that India is doing this Israeli position because whatever. What we're telling you, uh, what we're suggesting to you guys is if you actually look at India since post-independence and look at BJP politics itself and ideology, and draw this and watch the whole video yeah. from Indian independence to 2023, you can explain why they're doing what they're doing. Absolutely. So it's not about just, it's an exchange with the United States. It's not being a good quad partner, mm. you know, or, or what have you. It's India being India. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's India being India and sort of it's getting to a point where I don't think it's shying away from doing that, given that it knows the role that it's playing. It's acutely aware of where it stands in geopolitics today, much like Indonesia. You know, it's it's you know, we were talking about sleeping tigers earlier and we mentioned that you have certain similarities between India and Indonesia. And the fact that we've all been talking about these two entities and these two nation states stepping up to the plate, playing a leadership role. I think India, given the way it perceives its own economic and its own security strengths and where it stands today, is it, it's slightly less uh, shy, I suppose, of of projecting that through its actions, um, and in the way that it conducts itself. Um, 
unapologetic about being India. I think it's very blatantly. It's sort of it's sort of very blatant about the fact that yes, we are acting in our own self interests, yeah. and and this is what it is, and this is what you this is what you get from us. Um, but whether it's still able to take to take it forward and become, as I said in one of the previous episodes, from going from a balancing power to a leading power, I think that remains to be seen. Given that, much like Indonesia, some would argue India's own India's own worst enemy can also be India. Uh, so Neil, what do you think? What do you think is the uh, is the stimulus for a much more confident India in being much more upfront in saying what it is? Would you say that because uh, because now uh, uh, it feels like the world's attention is towards India, America, and the EU, and everybody's mm. trying to court India? So all of a sudden, India's feeling confident now that hey, you know what? Everybody loves us. I think we better be the you know we can step up to the plate. Does it? Does does the world's attention mm. on India gave it that boost in being much more upfront? I think so. I think it's 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 acutely aware that it's on the spotlight now. That that it's not just it's not just your sort of your your partners from the non-aligned movement, as it were, or Russia that were looking at you. Now it's the EU, it's the US, it's Southeast Asia, it's Australia, it's the Quad. I think it's also acutely aware that, at least on the issue of China and the rise of China, it, it's finding a buy-in from its partners. And some of those partners may even be more keen to sort of brush over all the conversations about India's democracy and where it's going towards. And I think it's also, again, it's also important to bring the ideational element, that the idea that India has a role to play in the world and this role, and, and in, in, indeed, it's, you know, India has... Um, a role to play in terms of becoming the leader of the world, becoming a Vishwaguru, as it's called in Hindi, is 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 very much not just India's right, but is an, but it's an India's fate, as it were. Is I don't think that's ever been lost on any of its leaders, but I think it's it's the the, the fact that uh, it knows the spotlight is on itself, and you know to a certain degree economically it's just going along. Uh, I think those two factors are making it, um, making at least the Indian foreign policy leaders very aware of 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 the world's tension and where India stands. But saying that, I think it's also important for us to remember that this is also a country which may have a space program, which may have, uh, some would argue, at least ten years ago, they had savings levels to the levels of East Asia, but they also have levels of inequality to the standard of Latin America, and levels of poverty in some parts of the country of Sub-Saharan Africa. Now, how you square that circle and project yourself to be a leader after that is 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 that that's a very interesting question. So, in many I think ways, that goes to the that goes to the point I was making at the end of that last segment uh, that the domestic politics oftentimes and the domestic political economic structure oftentimes are the one that drags. Absolutely, uh, many of these would be uh, uh, players. Absolutely, its actual, you know, uh, fulfillment of its role in the international stage. I want to ask Nick. You know, you brought up this idea of uh, India acting as an archetypal realist. Where do you see this going? How long can it? How how long can can India play that? Now, you know, does it? Is it? Is it kind of like a splendid balancer? <laughs> you know, so to speak. Uh, you know. Being the voice of the global south is not an Indian pattern. China is also trying to do the same mm. thing. You know, how, how do you see this going far? Well, certainly the first part would be India serving as a balancer to China. I think that's very important. Uh, and it's a valuable contribution that India can make to regional stability, and that's something that uh, I believe most countries in, in the region and the world, in fact, would welcome. And that's all very positive. Um, the second point I'd make is that India has a very complicated agency role to play because even while it's serving this function of stabilizing the system in the context of China's rise and US-China strategic competition, as we've seen in our discussion so far, if it's true that what's gone on in the case of Canada is indeed a state-sponsored assassination, then we're actually dealing in a very um, 
dangerous territory. Mm. Um, not least for India itself. D- don't even talk about setting a bad example for other countries like North Korea and so forth. Mm. Talk about India itself. Because once you cross a threshold and do something, it sets a norm, a pattern that can be replicated in the in the future. And um, you can see some very destructive dynamics occurring. Um, so, you know, agency can be exercised in the negative fashion as well as a positive fashion. And hopefully moving forward, we get India exercising agency in a much more positive fashion in a sense of perhaps leading in terms of developing a very strong South Asian regional identity mm. For, mm. For, for that region, if for no other reason that the world needs a strong South Asian uh, region. Uh, which has minimal uh, conflict. I mean, the Pakistan situation is always going to be there, mm. but you know that it's gone through ups and downs. We don't need a competition in nuclear risk taking and so forth. So we want to see India exercising its agency in a way that's responsible, uh, perhaps contributing to stability in a real way in the Indo-Pacific, in addition to South Asia. Uh, Nick. Uh, yeah. When you spe- when you said about India's balancer to China, yeah. so uh, where do we? How do we figure Japan in the, in this? You know, we over, has the world given up on the idea of Japan as a balancer to China? Oh no! In fact, I'd argue that Japan is even more of an important role as a balancer <laughs> via the U.S.-Japanese alliance. Uh, and if anything, uh, one could argue that uh, the, the, without Japan, uh, the regional stability would be even more compromised, right? So uh, Japan is playing a very valuable role. We've seen over the last 10 years, and particularly culminating in the national security strategy was released at the end of 2022. Um, Japan has doubled down on its role as a balancer and a stabilizer in the region. It's committing to the US-Japan alliance in a major way. Uh, One could argue even in unprecedented ways. And it's really... Um, shown its cards and, uh, and and basically decided that the status quo works for itself, Japan, as well as the region. So, you know, I, I think that um, as long as these countries, India, Japan, Indonesia, step up, play a role, uh, exercise agency, uh, the, the future for the Indo-Pacific can be a stable and a potentially quite prosperous and bright one. But you know, we will obviously be keeping track of how this story develops. Yeah, and I think in a way, you know, uh, in the past when we talk about the Taiwan contingency, for example, scholars have used the word the United States using what is called strategic ambiguity mm-hmm. as, uh, you know, keeping everyone on its toes. But in reality, uh, in the last five years, definitely, what we have seen is less movement away from strategic ambiguity, but more towards strategic clarity uh, so that there is no mistake in the, in, right. there's no mistake in the messaging of whatever the actors are going to be doing in case anything happens. So uh, today, uh, you know, I mean, let me wrap this uh, whole very interesting discussion on Indonesia, very interesting discussion on India, uh, uh, on this thought. And what we brought into this idea is, is that in the discussions of these two countries, a lot has to be said about what's happening in the domestic political realm mm. and how these the domestic political economic structures are either a stimulation towards uh, what they will do mm. as an, uh, uh, towards the action, or it can be a constraint to what they do. So uh, uh, in a couple of episodes ago, Orson brought up this uh, saying that politics stops as the water's edge. Mm-hmm. You know, but in reality, you know, for students of foreign policy, for students of international relations, we know that you know politics don't stop at the water's edge. Oftentimes, uh, what is reflected in international relations has is is reflected uh, a reflection of domestic politics mm-hmm. and vice versa. Right? Uh, I remembered years ago uh, Michael Mastanduno and a few colleagues writing a piece in ISQ, International Studies Quarterly, talking about elites using international objectives, uh, domestic strategies to achieve international objectives, or the reverse, you know, using international strategies to achieve domestic Mm -hmm. objectives. And and this is what we're seeing today. And the limits, the limits and potential to Indian 
uh, role in the international mm. arena to Indonesia's role in the region uh, is very much reflected on the domestic political economic structures as well as the international structures that that constraints provide the constraints or possibilities to all actors. And with that, you know, with that note, let me thank again uh, my colleagues here for a very very wonderful discussion. And thank you again for wasting almost an hour of your time listening to us yap uh, and chat. And I hope you do enjoy uh, us sharing our thoughts on some of these very interesting articles that we've been coming up with. And uh, we appreciate your support. We appreciate you listening to us and certainly subscribing to our program. With that, uh, thank you again and have a good day. Thank you.